1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If we want fishing to be around and we want this resource to be around, we need to all start to paint those pictures in our minds very clearly and start to you know, share the love and knowledge of, of those worlds with other people so that they too will connect with that. And I think that's my raison d'etre. That's my goal. That's why I started the charity Bluefish Canada. That's most of my uh, filming work now, my documentary. My other filming is, and, and my speaking is really to just encourage and to, to inspire people to become stewards of their, of their fishing holes, of their waters. I'm Lawrence Gunther. And this is the Tom Rowland Podcast.
2: Welcome to today's podcast. I have a really fantastic guest today. I'm really happy to bring you this story. I came across this gentleman uh, by listening to another podcast. I think it was called Fish Nerds. And, uh, listened to one of their episodes and they had this gentleman on and I was fascinated by his story. I knew I had to get him on our podcast. And this guy has done a tremendous amount of things in Canada for the most part, a lot of conservation work, a lot of work with fishing and and fishing rights and getting people to access, particularly young young people to access fishing. He's a competitive angler. He's a well-sponsored angler. He has um, done lots of other things and other interests, including competing in triathlons and competing in sailing regattas, whitewater kayaking, whitewater canoeing, all kinds of stuff. Oh, and did I mention that he was completely blind? Yep, he's North America's only blind competitive angler and... That's only a part of Lawrence's story. That is certainly not who defines him or what defines him because he is an infectiously positive person that is really a go-getter and a goal setter. And I am really pleased to bring this conversation to you. I have been avoiding telephone conversations. We've done a couple on this podcast, but I've really been avoiding it. And I came across this new technology. So I'm really interested to know what you think. This is the first one that we've done with this new technology. If you like it, please send me an email, podcast at com. because if you guys think that the quality is good, it really opens me up to be able to interview so many more people, because for the most part, most of what I've been doing is face-to-face. So if you like this, send me an email and let me know that the quality was good to your standard, and we will get lots of people on. So, stand by for a really fantastic episode with my new friend, Lawrence Gunther. All right, so I believe that I have Lawrence Gunther on the phone with me. I'm here, man. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. I have done a little bit of research. I came across, I came across you I actually listened to you on another podcast. I think it was the Fish Nerds podcast. I was just fascinated by your story. I was I was really fascinated by it and, and I really wanted to talk to you and I just kind of have avoided telephone interviews because I have not been very happy with the quality that I've gotten over the over the phone. And I've just started working out a few other things. I finally found this one thing that seems to be a lot better. So I'm very, very excited to be talking to you today and I just want to hear your story, man. It's so fascinating what you've been able to do and and what you can you can you fill us in a little bit?
1: Sure, yeah. Well you know what? Uh let's get the uh get the eight hundred pound gorilla identified in the room here in the <laughs> podcast room. I'm North America's only uh totally blind professional angler. I'm an outdoor writer, a podcaster, a blogger, a filmmaker, and uh just an overall fishing nut, right? So that's, that's where that started. But um, yeah, so like I've gone blind three times in my life and it started at age eight. I was, uh, grew up in a small town. I love fishing. I have three brothers and uh, my dad noticed that I was not seeing some of the detail I should be seeing. So they had me tested and it turns out I was missing my very central vision, the opposite of tunnel vision. I was just missing the central vision. And then I was told that that would never change, that I would always have a lot of peripheral vision. So I, I never thought about it again. I just kept being a, a kid. I did everything a kid does. I learned uh, how to tie flies. I got into fly fishing in my little streams and rivers near my house. I got my hunting license. A lot of my friends were encouraging me to get a driver's license, but uh, I didn't think that was such a great idea. I did own my <laughs> own snowmobile. And I fixed up an old '64 Ford pickup truck that I have to admit I did drive around a little bit once in a while. But then, you know, it was in my twenties. I went blind for my second time, and that was when I, uh, I I had to go to the city to get some education. I went to college and university and all that stuff, and uh, I had to give away my my beagle and uh, no more hunting rabbits. But I went to Toronto, and then uh, and then I realized that. I couldn't see at night anymore when I went outside or if I was outside during the day in the winter and I came inside I couldn't see anything cuz my eyes wouldn't dilate quick enough and it was leaving me functionally blind quite often so I uh, I went off and got a guide dog and I've been using guide dogs ever since but then in my 40s in my 40s I went uh, it spread out to the point where I lost all my vision so that's mm-hmm. where I am now I'm totally blind so three different phases in my life of a vision loss they all were totally different. They all meant totally different things to me and were totally different challenges. But uh, And I handled them all in different ways, that's for sure. But yeah. I made it through. Made it through.
2: Well, you've been able to do some really remarkable things, including, I mean, I'm reading over your, your bio here. You've competed in over 100 tournaments, more than 20 top 10 finishes. You do all kinds of documentaries on television. You're a radio host, a podcaster. You write. You do whitewater canoeing, kayak fishing, backwoods camping, alpine and cross country skiing, scuba diving, competing in triathlons. You have six children. You're big uh leader in Canada's conservation. I mean, just on and on and on, including winning a sailing a sailing regatta. I mean, little I, I would think that it would be quite an understatement for you to to say that that being blind has, has impacted your life in a, in a way that
1: you haven't found a way to do the things that you want to do? It's an interesting question, you know, because, because yeah, I mean, a good day for me is I go through a whole day and I don't even think about the fact that I'm blind, right? Like I have uh, I get out, I work, I have full-time work. I have, uh, all my, uh, you know, distractions, my fishing, my family, my podcasts, and, you know, my writing, all that stuff. Um, I have a great talking computer, my iPhone talks, right? All the uh, iPhones now talk just by flipping a button. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's great technology out there, but there's a lot of things I can't do. There's, for sure, there's a lot of things I can't do. I think the challenge to me, though, was to say, what, you know, what can I do better than sighted people? right? And, and hmm. that's, that's the challenge because, I mean, I'm competitive. I, I, I consider myself a competitive person. I grew up with three <laughs> brothers, you know. They, they're not yeah. going to let me get away with anything. So <clears throat> I, I was being interviewed by this guy who wrote a dictionary of blind sports or sports that blind people play. And mm-hmm. I said, hey, I, so I got a question for you. I said, what, what sport can a blind person do better than a sighted person? And he said, well, he said he had done about 70 different sports so far where blind people participate. And he said the one that was really interesting that he discovered was wrestling. Apparently blind yeah. people make great wrestlers because you never – they're hard to fake out because they don't get faked out. And you never know where they're going to come from next, right? They just come at you. <laughs> right. And,
2: yeah, and, well, that's my thats my sport, wrestling. And I can uh, see that because yeah. often, often, you know, when you're wrestling, you – you're you're going at it so hard, and I think very often either your your eyes are closed or you're just focused on something. Hopefully, you're, as a wrestler, hopefully you're not focused on the ceiling because that means you're getting pinned. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just you're going by feel so much that. Yeah. And, and jujitsu, I think, would be very very similar in that wrestling and jujitsu, maybe judo, something like that. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to yeah, interrupt. Yeah,
1: no, no, but no, but you're right. And it's the it's that initial sort of. That pre-engagement, you know, the the faking and the and you know, that initial grasp. But a blind person, their their big task is to make that initial grasp and then work on it, right? So mm-hmm. they're coming at you, and they're not going to get faked out, and you know, as uh, all that all of those tricks that you develop against sighted competition aren't going to work. So I, I love wrestling too. I, I enjoyed a lot in high school. I played some football too. Didn't like that quite so much because the coaches never told me about blockers they just told me about it. <laughs> i learned that later but uh but uh i i i also thought fishing you know fishing is something that i was always good at and fly fishing i do fly fishing but mainly my 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 real love of fishing is uh vertical fishing you know the touch the real feel the bite kind of uh Jigs and drop shots and anything where you're you're really finessing. That's my uh, sort of specialization. Yeah, and so in the tournaments
2: that you're fishing in, that mostly bass tournaments or walleye tournaments or what do you do in Canada?
1: Bass, walleye, pike, muskie, salmon, trout, panfish a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me how how does it work? You know, because the first
2: I, I told my my family, I was like, man, I'm going to interview this really cool guy today. He's uh, North America's only blind fisherman. And, you know, their first question was, wow, how does that work? Like he's going out in a boat. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to find out. I don't I don't know exactly how it works. <laughs> so so how does it I mean, are you are you boat fishing in this? Because I know I saw on your website where you're fishing with your dog, which I was also fascinated that you're fishing rivers and you have your, your guide dog. That's obviously keeping you from going in too far or in. I don't know how you've trained the dog, but it, it's, it's really cool. What's going yeah. on there?
1: Well, uh, you know, for wading and, and shore fishing uh, and wading, I just use one of those telescopic leashes, you know, and I attach uh-huh. one into my wader's and the other into the dog. So that way, I know I'm never getting too far away from the shore, and my dog, I do, I always encourage them to stay on the shoreline. So okay. um, so I always know where the shore is. I always know I'm within 20 feet of the shore because that's how long those leashes get and uh so that that's a good tool for me but i i'll tell you about the boating thing it, i i'll go back a little bit i i've always had a boat right i always had uh fishing boats and that, various boats i mean like all of us we've all had our watercraft and evolved through watercraft but i had a i had a 12 foot aluminum boat with an 8 horsepower on it for years and then i remember going out with my oldest daughter just with the oars, and, and I knew I was getting pretty low on the vision, and I put my oldest daughter in the front of the boat. She was five years old, and we were on this um, sort of a gut, sort of where the river opens up and goes into the ocean uh, out in Nova Scotia. And I, I rode out from land, and I, told, I was taught my daughter uh, for like two days. I taught her left and right. So I would say, okay, you tell me left or right, sweetie. And it was pretty obviously that that was not going to work. Right. That that she could not tell me left or right fast enough or in any way to keep me going in a straight line. Right. Rowing that boat with a pair of oars. Often then, you're
2: rowing backwards, so that often this <laughs> throws another
1: <laughs> oh, into the, yeah, yeah.
2: okay. Which way is left?
1: Like, <laughs> With the left arm? No, the other left. No, and yeah. she'd say the other <laughs> left. the other, other, and then she'd get all confused, and then the boat's spinning around out there like a cork, and the wind's taking us away. And and I'm thinking, oh man, we're going to get washed into the ocean. We're going to get blown out into the ocean. And then I stopped rowing, and I and I got my daughter to just quiet down, and I said, okay, sweetie, just listen. And I listened to the shore and in front of my cabin, I'd planted all these pine trees and the pine trees were made a specific noise in the wind. It was more like a, a soft sort of huss noise. And mm. all around the shore, it was mostly uh, poplar and birch trees, which rattle like crazy. They make a very loud noise with the leaves. So I listened to the shoreline for the spot where there was no noise. And, and then uh, I just rode towards that dead spot a sound. And that was back to our property again, back to our shoreline. And then I hmm. got out and I told my daughter, I said, don't tell mommy. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> How'd the trip go? Oh, it was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but never doing that again. <laughs> but, uh, but it got me really focused on like, okay, I really need technology. So I, I started bugging this Canadian uh, technology company to build me a GPS system that I could use as a blind person. And they did. And it wasn't just for me. I mean, they marketed this and they sold it. But I got the first copy, and and I I could make a waypoint, and then I it would give me directions. You know, uh, you know, one o'clock, two hundred and twelve meters. I'd create my Hmm. points, and then I could I could navigate from point to point to point. So then I got myself a little plastic porta boat. I don't know, they're made in California. They're they're these folding boats. They weigh about seventy pounds, and I put a electric motor on it, little Torquedo. And I put some reverse sensors I bought at the uh, auto body shop, you know, that, you know, you put on your bumpers and they beep at different rates. And I put those on Mm -hmm. the front and I put some other sensors and I got a talking depth sounder that a guy made me uh, in Australia. And I, and I, anyways, I cobbled together this talking beeping audio boat with an electric motor. And I, and I, I just started using that and I said, wow, I can go fishing again. You know, I can get out on my own again and go fishing in my little electric boat. And, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was. I still do it. And I still have it. And a buddy of mine said, you should blog about that. And that's, this is going back about 12, 13 years. So I started blogging. The website's still up, blindfishingboat.com. I leave it up, even though now I quickly learned two things. One is that there's a lot of weird people out there that wanna, that are losing their eyesight and they want to drive around big boats. And I have to <laughs> <laughs> discourage them and have no connection with them whatsoever (laughs) because they're they're just a death trap on these on the water right (laughs) and and the other thing i noticed too is that you know the media loved that story they love that blind fishing boat story and people love that story but i realize it's it's a story you cover once and you never cover it again so Mm. from a blogging perspective from a social media sort of trying to monetize that little blind fishing boat it, it it really had a sort of a a big splash, but not a whole lot of carry through, and 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 that was fine. I was I was fine with that. I was fine just to let it go quiet and just you know answer questions. I do get a lot of emails from family members and uh, other family members and friends of people who are going blind and say, hey, my my dad's going blind. He wants to sell his bass boat, you know, or or you know just questions about how to fish blind. So I, I get I get a lot of those questions. I love answering that stuff, but I also said, you know what. I don't want to be just known as the guy who fishes blind by himself. I want to, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good angler and I always did well in tournaments. So some sponsors approached me and said, Lawrence, you know, if you, if you go uh, tournament fishing more, we'll, we'll sponsor you. Uh, now I'm one of the top 10 best sponsored anglers in Canada. <laughs> it's crazy. That's awesome. There's
2: something, there's something a blind angler does better than a, than a sighted angler. So oh, I think yeah. I think a lot of that doesn't have anything to do with being blind. It probably has to do with with uh, being a quality
1: person and follow through and doing what you say you're going to do probably more often than. That's exactly it, Tom, because, um, you know, I realized that if I approached a sponsor and said, hey, I, this is who I am, this is what I do. The first reaction was a lot of them would just want to give me a, a few baubles and just pat me on the head and say, there you go, blind man. Here's a little charity for you. Right. hmm. And then I would turn those baubles into like a a full blown six month report on all the media attention. I got them all the activity Mm. I've done, you know, the full blown, you know, pro staff report that you give to your sponsors of all the uh, all the outreach you've done on their behalf. And then so I was able to turn those little charity donations to uh, full blown contracts. And you know, and I sign contracts now every year. I sign a lot of contracts with Ranger Boats, Evinrude Motors, Shimano, uh, Lawrence, Navionics. You know, like some of them, premier fishing and marine industry leaders. Now I'm signing mm-hmm. contracts with them, Eagle Claw, because they love my reports. They love those the, the the what I bring them. They love the exposure I get them. And um, and and I'm I work hard. I work damn hard. That's what, that's what it takes. I mean, there is no
2: question. Uh, you know, a lot of people. A lot of people, I, I guess that's probably maybe one of the most common questions that I've ever received was I've won a couple of tournaments now, how do I get sponsored? You know, and it's like, well, winning a tournament doesn't have anything to do with being sponsored. Like, that's that's the, the thing that I think a lot of people don't quite get, that you really need to be doing what you're doing, and and that is, you know, reaching out and the outreach on behalf of the sponsor and then reporting to to back to them of why it's worth their while to be associated with you. I mean, you could write a book on that right there. You you've obviously done a very good job
1: of it. It 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 really you have to bring them value, way more value than they uh, they bring you and if you do it, you have sponsors for your career and that's that's the main thing because switching sponsors, you know, from one boat companies to another one marine engine company to another that's it's it's a death trap for a lot of people because you lose Mm -hmm. loyalty you lose that uh your brand gets confused because you are who your brands are really i I mean your identity gets totally wrapped up in your branding but i i have to admit though like if you're going to be like you said a a good angler and you you got to finish top 10 all the time there's something you know good anglers know and that's, they know how to fish blind, like I do. Like, they know how to feel the bite, like I do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and fishing rods, really good fishing rods are really nothing more than souped up white canes, right? That's what I call them, you know. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they got a it's, a, it's a white cane with a reel strapped to one end and some guides, you know, tied onto it. It's, it's a sensing stick. And I, I talk about that. I mean, it, you can, a fishing rod is for launching lures. It's for fighting fish. But 99% of the time, you're using it as a sensing tool. It's mm-hmm. for you to give information to your hand of what's going on out there. And good anglers know that. And they use their fishing rods as white canes when they're fishing to feel what's going on. But they got an advantage over me. They could see, right? So so the good well, ones can of. see. Well, kind of. Yeah, they can see their chart plotters. And they can see you know where the birds are. And, you know, right. There's those indicators.
2: But when it comes to when it comes to just feeling like we have a we have an expression in the Florida Keys that uh, when we're when we're doing certain types of fishing, the client's asking how to how to set the hook, and you say, "Well, we're just going to let Rodney handle that." And they say, "Who's Rodney?" And <laughs> and Rodney's right here, and you put the rod in the rod holder, and you say, "You wait until that rod bends over, like for chumming for bonefish, for for example." The bonefish comes up, and a lot of times you have little fish nipping, nibbling at the bait and, you know, pulling on it or, or, you know, whatever. And people set the hook, well, it messes up the whole thing because all those little fish are around the shrimp or whatever, and they're nipping at it, and somebody goes to set the hook. Now you've moved the shrimp or pulled it off the hook or done whatever, where if you let it sit there, then a bonefish comes up and eats the whole thing and then takes off, and mission accomplished. Rodney's the best. At that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so yeah, oftentimes so. if you see the if you see the rod bouncing a little bit, that might not be the best thing for that particular situation. And I think what you're talking about too is like vertical fishing, drop shotting. We do a lot of it in the in the Florida Keys where you're you're vertical jigging for tuna and stuff like that. It's a little different, a lot a lot more aggressive oh, excuse me, aggressive than than uh drop shotting for a bass, but yeah, there's no sight involved at all
1: yeah and sometimes you're right sometimes a slack line is better than a tight line right sometimes you have Mm -hmm. to forego the need to feel i mean i want to i want a big pier fishing competition against 500 competitors in north carolina simply because i would stay on the side of the pier with where the wind was the strongest and and not turn my back to the cold wind and i also kept my line slack right because fish don't like resistance they don't understand there's you know a four 200 pound guy at the end of a tight line when they go to bite <laughs> a little piece of shrimp they don't want to feel there's that a jerk
2: on one end right <laughs>
1: that's what they say <laughs> i love it never heard that that's good but they, you know well, but they want if they want to feel that natural slackness and they want to see the uh, the baits tumbling in the current and acting totally natural and if you tighten the line it, it, it doesn't show that so yeah, sometimes right. you, you just have to let it go slack and let nature take its course. I just love
2: it that you've been able to, to develop this and, and get back to what you really like to do, and then you've developed it into into something that you're, you're taking a step further. I would imagine, but, but I still am a little bit uncertain about, like, if you're at a, at a fishing tournament, there's, there's, you know, 50 boats in there, and it's a shotgun start.
1: What does that look like? So Okay, so I, I don't compete in my little plastic folding boat that much i mean i i do some kayak tournaments i do a little bit of fishing in that plastic boat mostly though with my kids you know i go fishing mm-hmm. with the, i take them i have a, i have a ranger 620 fisherman that mm-hmm. uh, i use for tournament fishing and then i have partners so i have a partner who does walleye fishing with me i have a partner who does gotcha. bass fishing with me i have a partner who does salmon. another partner who does musky you know they're all my captains so they drive my boat they back up my. They drive my truck. Sometimes I'll, uh, you know, when we load the boat on the uh, trailer, if the water's really cold, I'll, 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 I'll get in the truck and pull the boat and trailer out of the water so the guy doesn't have to get out of the boat if he drives the boat up on the uh, on the trailer. I don't drive mm-hmm. too far through the boat lines. Just maybe twenty thirty What's feet thing here. <laughs> When I got my last truck, Tom, I had uh, all these sensors installed on the front and back bumpers, right? And my wife gets into the truck and she goes, What the hell's all that noise? And I said, Oh, it's the uh, sensors I had installed, and none of them worked properly. They were going off at all the wrong times. And uh, and she got so pissed off at me. She she said, You got to get those things removed. Why'd you get the boot on? I said, Oh, so I could drive the truck, just move it around in the driveway, you know? <laughs> How'd that go over? Not well. Not well. They all came out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's funny. Oh, oh yeah. So, no. so I'm very interested because I, I really get a sense from you that that you know, just being able to compete in some tournaments and actually being top ten or 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 having lots of sponsorship, I, I really get a sense from you that that's that's not enough, and you want to do more. With your, with your life, with your career, with, with, with this situation that you have found yourself in. And I noticed that it was talking on your bio, it said something about motivational speaking and speaking engagements. And you're obviously a very charismatic speaker. How are you using this, this situation, you know,
1: to help others or to, to speak and, and, and touch more people with your story? That's a good question because it's something... I asked myself to, and, and, you know, I said, if I'm going to be a tournament angler, you really have to do that, you know, all the pre-fishing, right? Mm-hmm. A, a week of pre-fishing, be, otherwise you, you can't just show up and go fishing and, and on tournament day and expect to do well, you know, uh, you're not going to do well. There's too many people out there that are really dedicating their time and their energy and, and making it their full and total focus. And if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to do it properly, don't do it. You're wasting your money, you're wasting mm-hmm. your time. So I mean, I I love tournament fishing. I still do uh, about ten tournaments a year, but they're mostly charity events now and just fun events. And uh, and I don't plan my year around the tournaments anymore. I plan my year around the things I want to do, and then fit the tournaments around that. And what I what I decided to do is to is to again that question: What can a blind person do better than a sighted person? And and I I I came to the understanding that when I wake up in the morning. And I, I, I open my no good eyes, right? And I, I'm, I'm th- lying in bed and thinking, where the hell are my socks? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> like everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I visualize my room. I feel around, you know, find my socks. I visualize my room. I visualize my house. I visualize my neighborhood. I visualize all the rivers and lakes around my uh, community within 100 miles. And I, I, I'll, I go further. I mean, I take that skill now—that visualization skill—and through scuba and through my fishing, I visualize the underwater world the same way. And I think that's that's my that's where I want to go, is, and that's where I have been going for the last number of years. Is is trying to encourage other people to use those visualization skills. We all have them to start to understand that beneath the waves beneath the surface of our lakes and rivers and oceans, there's a whole other world under there that we Mm -hmm. need to connect with and we need to understand and we need to believe in. And we don't need to dismiss it just because it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Or because if we don't see it, we won't believe it. You got to believe it. You got to imagine it. You got to visualize it. And we got to start taking care of it better. Because if we allowed... To what happened to the, to the terrestrial world, what happens to the underwater world, people would freak out, right? I mean, the changes that happen to our underwater ecosystems that we, that we impact, you know, that we influence those underwater ecosystems through our, through our, our stupidity, our naivete, is just astonishing. And I'm talking invasive species, like the Great Lakes, 185 invasive species in the Great Lakes now, and counting, you know, plants and, uh, and animals. Uh, I'm talking about blue-green algae. I'm talking about, you know, the, the chemicals we dump in. I'm talking about dredging. I'm talking about, you know, dams and silt- siltation. I'm You know, there's so many ways we destroy our ecosystems underwater and we don't think about it. We don't visualize it. And if we want fishing to be around and we want this resource to be around, we need to all start to paint those pictures in our mind very clearly and start to, you know, share the love and knowledge of, of those worlds. With other people, so that they too will connect with that, and I think that's my raison d'etre that's my goal that's why I started the charity bluefish canada that's most of my uh filming work now, my documentary my other filming is and, and my speaking is really to just encourage and to to inspire people to become stewards of their of their fishing holes of their waters. Are you planning on
2: trying to um to push that out beyond anglers, I mean, because it's one thing to it's one thing to get anglers to kind of be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I guess we ought to be paying paying a little more attention to this." Because what if I couldn't fish? Oh, that'd be terrible. And so you can really get to point across like that. But what about to somebody that that I mean, we're 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 really un- encountering these issues in Florida, right? We I'm sure you're aware. Probably it made a lot of news, but you know, we had some. We have this. Lake Okeechobee situation, and there's, there's effluent flowing out into the ocean, and it causes all kinds of problems. It, it blows up into these algae blooms. We have Captains for Clean Water is, a, is an organization that's been doing a tremendous amount for, for, for the future of, of this situation, and kind of public education is a big thing, and, and public education is one thing when a bunch of dead fish are, are washing up on the beach. Then people are like, oh boy, I don't want this, you know, really what we're all kind of understanding now is that if you really want to have an impact, it's one thing to to talk to fishermen. It's one thing to talk to bird watchers. It's one thing to talk to the people that are out there. And of course, they're going to be your easiest audience. Like they understand it. They, They can see and smell and feel the beauty of this place. They don't want it to go bad. They can be a little bit more responsible in their life or whatever. But what about the other people, the people that Live in the cities. The people that don't go fishing.
1: What's your plan to to reach them? It's it's not easy because you have a lot of water activist organizations at the other end of the spectrum, right? Like you talk about the anglers and you talk about the uh, the, the the fishers and the outdoors people. For sure, there's that end. You know, the people who harvest, who partake, who are on the water. You know, hundreds of days a year whose life and their hobbies and their interests and their passion is totally rolled up in, in the water and the ecosystems and their survival. At the other end, you have these water activists or environmental groups that can go totally in the other direction, where they don't want anyone to touch anything, where it's mm-hmm. all got to be naturalized and, 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 and protected and preserved and prohibited and, uh, you know, kept free of any sort of human contact. And, and, and I don't think that's the right answer either. So, I, I, you know, I'm walking down the middle here and, and sometimes the environmental groups, you know, they're okay with what we do as a charity. You know, we, we are, do uh, believe in harvesting sustainably and catch and release both. And some environmental groups are okay with that and many aren't. And, and I've been told mm-hmm. many times that I'll never get grant from that organization or we'll never get funding from that foundation because it's hook and line. And they'll never do it. And that's fine. That's fine. You know, but you know what? You guys are missing out on that. And then I hear, too, from some of these sort of ultra right-wing outdoor organizations that say, you know, it's our God-given right to hunt and fish as much as we want and to harvest. And, you know, no one's got a right to step in our way. And there's no climate change ever happening. It's just a natural cycle. You know, and so there's those two extremes. And you're never going to convince those people to believe anything, but there's the whole silent majority in the middle, right? The guy, Mm -hmm. the guy and the gal who go went fishing with their grandpa or grandma, you know, as a kid, now they got grandkids and they're thinking, I I want to do this with my grandkids, but I, I don't want to teach them the wrong way. I don't want to teach them something that my grandchildren are going to say to me, grandpa or grandma. You know why are you doing that? You're you're hurt, killing the fish, or you're hurting the fish, or you're going to destroy the environment. You know, so it's those people that want to be educated. They say, "Hey, I want to teach my kid to fish. I also want to teach them to fish the right way, and the uh, the responsible way, and the uh, the sustainable way." And 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 it's those young people that have caught their first fish under the dock or whatever, and now they're they got the passion for fishing, and they want to grow up and they want to be able to hold their head high and be able to counter any sort of resistance from their friends or schoolmates of saying, oh, you're murdering fish you're torturing fish. And they can say no. And they can be factually uh, clear to those people why what they're doing is a sustainable activity and it's a supportable activity and it's a it's a tradition and it's a way of connecting and maintaining a connection with nature that's profound. Uh, so these young people, they want that knowledge. And and the trainers, the mentors want this knowledge. So there's this whole sort of majority of middle road people that that have, you know, this passion, that, that have this sense of tradition, the sense of heritage. And, yeah. and that they wanna keep they want to keep that rolling, man. They wanna keep that alive. And they wanna well, make sure are, they're doing those, it right.
2: Those are your those are your warriors. Those are the people that are really going to be able to to move the needle. I mean, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the United States, we have basically self-levied taxes on hunting and fishing equipment that go back to, you know, the uh the resource and and employing game wardens and and all sorts of, you know, things that 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 money goes towards where so many of these other groups don't put a penny towards the environment. And if I mean, I I just do not. I've never Believe that keeping people out is the solution because then it might work for a little while, but then you see you see young kids growing up with no connection whatsoever to the outdoors, so why do they even care why Why would they care what's going on out there, or why would they care about you know what they flush down the toilet or what they put down the sink, or who cares they're never going to see it they're just going to live right there in that city and and i think those are the hardest people to get through to the people that have zero connection to it at all but i don't know i think experience is the is the key and education like let people see how beautiful it is let people experience the way they feel after being in the woods for a weekend and then you understand the importance of of wild lands wild things and
1: our ability and rights to uh to experience that, you know? Their point about urban kids is so, so right on, you know, and, and one of the things we're doing with our charities, we've got grants now and we're working with different municipalities to create uh, urban fishing nodes. So where you have a body of water passing through an urban community, you know, and you see a, pi- a bicycle path or a jogging path following that shoreline, but then you see, you know, 10 feet of the meanest rip rap, you know, that barrier between the path and the shoreline that no one in their right mind would dare cross over without you know risking a break to their leg or a twist to their ankle. So you know it's 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 off limits. It's off limits. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, let's 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 naturalize a piece of the shoreline with some boulders, with some paths, with some trees, let's extend that naturalized space into the water itself to create habitat for fish and let's make it accessible let's make it well lit let's make it a place where urban kids could just walk into the water and get their sneakers wet like like every other kid did growing up right in the in the country in the small towns they just went fishing in their sneakers and it came home with their 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 shoes wrecked and you know and every sometimes kid, they were
2: fishing, sometimes they were just throwing rocks, you know, okay. whatever. They were they were catching, on the side of that pond or that body of water experiencing nature.
1: Catching frogs, chasing right. dragonflies, all of that, all of that, absolutely. Learning that synergy where land and water meets and that intensive life happens at that little strip of shoreline. There's so much life. There's so much diversity right there. That's just—it's a magnet for children. Absolute magnet. They should—they should have the experience to go in there with their sticks and their little fishing rods and and sample and explore and and connect. And that's profoundly uh, life-changing. Absolutely. So how that's, is that? How is it going with
2: uh, with trying to create these? Why, well, first, let's let's talk
1: about your charity. So it's called Bluefish Canada.
2: It's that's about what, the, that's what it is
1: yeah the water and the fish it you got to think of both you can't just think of one without the other if the habitat is ruined the water's ruined the fish are are gone if the you know if the fish are gone there's no you know the water is you know it's just water for drinking then right or swimming so mm-hmm. you got to look at both you got to look at both so that's uh, that's that's what we're doing
2: there okay so then then you're you're proposing things like creating paths to this these these water bodies of water, like we just discussed, or improving the path or, or creating, you know, a park-like environment there and, and inviting kids to use it. How's that kind of going with the state, local, uh, province, governments, whatever you're dealing with? Is that
1: being accepted or? You know, city planners and, and social, uh, social workers and community workers, they understand the kids are spending way too much time behind um, screens, shiny tech. And they need Mm -hmm. to get back out and connect with nature. So ways to get kids to connect with nature, even if it does involve a hook and line, it's better than uh, than no connection, right? So so they get it. And you know what? Most people have had experience fishing, like they've as a child with their grandparent, and they and they remember that the love, the, the 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 good time, the good feelings they had from that. So so yeah. So there's a lot of support. It's 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 to overcome those sometimes those pot bangers you know the ones that are saying you know the pita kind of activists don't you know no fishing no hunting no harvesting Mm -hmm. you know veganism is the way to go you know so but they're those people are minority they always have been a minority vegetarians and vegans make up about 12 percent of the population and that hasn't changed for 40 50 years and i'm not saying eating vegetables more often is wrong but i'm it that doesn't that's not the same thing of what we're talking about here. We're talking about connecting with nature, you know. And go way back in the Bible, two thousand years, of what were they doing? Fishing, mm-hmm. right? And go <laughs> yeah. back to that, thousands of years before that. What were we doing? we were crawling out of the ocean and crawling out of the seas, and you know, it, and we were always gathering along the shore and always, always there. It's part of it's part of our DNA. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, very smart psychiatrists and psychologists now who believe that it's so ingrained in our dna to have this experience of connecting with shorelines and 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 marine life that if you deny a child that you're actually you're actually preventing the full development of their uh, of their personality so Boy,
2: i can believe that i can believe that in my case i spent a lot of time sitting on a dock by the tennessee river just fishing by myself catching nothing Every now and then I catch something, I guess, but the amount of hours I spent there compared to the number of fish that were caught was was a a horrible um, ratio. But that was a big, big, huge part of my growing up, and that was a huge part of my development. and It was a huge part of who I became later, unknowingly, like being drawn back to the water, being drawn back to you know wanting to be outside and experiencing you know fishing and hunting and you know just camping, backpacking, just being outside. I just, I don't know. I think that that is spot on what you just said, that when you deny that to someone growing up, that that cannot be good for their development.
1: Nope, it's not. And, and, And if you look at fish as a resource, I mean, in the United States, I think it's a little more evolved than we have in Canada. And hats off to you guys. You know, I look at what you're doing with your National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the National Fisheries and, and, and how you're rebuilding your fish stocks around the oceans there and your coastlines. And it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, the United States is a leader in the world in rebuilding fish stocks and, and managing fish stocks using science and using science-based management practices. Fantastic it's a resource it's like christmas trees you plant them you grow them you harvest them right if it's done properly it's totally sustainable it's totally sustainable and kids understand that they understand that they, they it's not rocket science to them that uh, this is a renewable resource that can be harvested or can be catch and release there's no reason it can't be both
2: right you know one of the things that you just said is is i think one of the reasons why sometimes conservation or rebuilding fish stocks or, or setting certain limits or laws or or even in the city planning, setting green spaces and stuff like that. One of the reasons why a lot of that is often accepted and encouraged in the United States, I think, is because one of the things that a lot of the groups are very good at is drawing a financial line between, you know, if we have no fish you know this is a tur- like for the state of Florida for example tourism fishing tourism bird watching tourism is responsible for i I don't know the number but it is a staggering amount of dollars and you know so it's like if we can improve the fishing this number goes up for everyone not fishing guides all, alone but hotels and restaurants and the city itself Lots of people come to certain areas to fish, and I'm sure that it's the same in Canada. Are you doing some of that kind of um discussions with some of these city planners and other people when you're talking about these these um, you know renovations to some of the bodies of water and allowing fish fishing or or more access to that i mean certainly that that in turn. Kind of lends itself to a to a better place to live. The real
1: estate values go up. Just a more agreeable place. I I, I look. I got two answers. What one is? You know, the whole tournament series, and I and I go down in the states. And I go to the American side of the St. Lawrence River where they're having a lot of the uh, bass uh, and other of you know, bass tournaments. And you you see a hundred thousand people show up and you see whole festivals and carnivals and the whole community's involved and you know, it's a it's a full blown tourism operation. And it's mm-hmm. it's a huge injection into the community of of resources, of, of capital. And then you see on the Canadian side, they can barely get a permit to get the boats launched at the boat launch, and then there's resistance, <laughs> and you know, you don't even see anyone showing up with a hot dog truck. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Complete reverse. Uh, People think it's a scourge almost that you have these bass tournament uh, anglers showing up at their shoreline. So that we've got a lot of education to do with that. So we're working with a lot of uh, tourism tour uh, tournament organizers to certify them as as sustainable through Bluefish Canada. You know the practices, Mm. the principles, and we're helping promote. We're saying, look, scientists love these tournaments because it's a great place to gather data. You know, it's catch and release. Absolutely. It's catch and release, it's, it's economic sustainability, it's economic uh, in, you know, infusion into the community. So there's a lot of bonuses that go along with these tournaments. So that, that, that's my answer to that. I, I have to go back, though, a bit in time. And, and you know when I was doing my university studies and college, there, they didn't have a lot of talking computers back then. They didn't have a lot of talking technology of any sort. And my, my employment opportunities were pretty limited. Like I, I, I was approached by the um, president of the Blind Piano Tuners Union, and I was offered an apprenticeship to become a blind piano tuner, and uh, and that was one of the very few professions back then that a blind person could actually make a living from. And I thought, wow, that's pretty. That's pretty sucky because I hate pianos. <laughs> <laughs> well, or they hate me. Let's put it that way. They... <laughs> but. But what I did do is I bought a little cabin out in on the East coast of Canada, uh, you know, for very little money. And I convinced some local uh, fishers to take me cod fishing in their homemade wooden boats with their, you know, car engines in them and their compass and their little VHF radio. And that was it. And, and you know, and then finally they agreed and we had a great day. We caught, I think uh, the first day I went out, we caught 2,300 pounds of cod on hand lines just you know three of us jigging hand lines and and uh, it was a great day it was a great day we made some good money they made eight hundred dollars and i got my 10 percent share of the take that day and and i was invited to come back and and i was made crew and i did that for the next seven years i crewed every summer on those that cod fishing boat with those the father and son there in their homemade boat and i they would even let me drive the boat back because they didn't want me you use the fillet knives and cut myself, right? (laughs) Here, you have the boat. Somehow that's better. (laughs) I couldn't see the compass. I could see a little bit back then still, right? So I could see that when we were driving back West, we were always driving West at the end of the day into the sun and the windshield had a wooden two by two sort of separating the two pieces of glass. And that two by two piece of wood would, Shine this big black shadow across the dashboard, and I would just say just light it up, and I'll look at that shadow, and I'll just keep that shadow sort of on that spot in the dashboard, and I'd get to drive home two three hours at the end of every day. I loved it, um, absolutely <laughs> loved it. <laughs> and they would just come in and give me a course correction every half hour or so, or yell at me, slow down. We got to get some buckets of water out, and, and uh, they'd be cleaning the catch in the back, and I just got to drive. But but I love that. And then and then in nineteen ninety two. It was gone. Like all the cod were gone. And huh. and I said, I, you know, I'm a good angler, right? I'm good at fishing, but I didn't take them all out of there, right? And it, 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 something happened to them. And I it sparked my interest. And, and I realized that, you know, you can have these communities. These people did this for 500 years, Tom. 500 years in their homemade wooden boats. They went out off these rocky shorelines, went out, harvested cod, brought them back, sold them, you know. Their daughters and wives would work in the cleaning plants, and where they would be processed, and, and you know, and filleted, and cleaned, and packed on ice, and shipped out. It was a full blown, it was a full blown uh, uh, experience for the whole family, and it went back generations. And then these big, massive factory trawlers showed up in the eighties, mm. and just wiped it out. Literally wiped it out in ten years. You know, absolutely destroyed the cod fishery in 10 years. A 500-year-old fishery was wiped out in 10 years. And, and that's, that's, that's what we need to remember is that you can have these communities on these shorelines that can have sustainable economic activity that can support families for multiple generations if you do it right. If you do it right. Uh, but you got to stand up for your resource. And you got to be counted. And it, it. we're learning how to count all these, you know, individual boats and individual hotels and individual homes and individual, all that stuff. We're learning how to count it. We never used to know how to count it. We just counted a big boat. And the fact that it cost 10, you know, it caught 10,000 pounds of fish every day, that was easy to count. We we're good at that mm-hmm. But but we didn't know how to count the, the cost to the community, and, and now we do. Now we do.
2: So let me ask you about that cod boat. Those those big cod boats that come in They're, What was the method of of fishing? Was it netting, or was it hook and line, or what? How were they catching their fish?
1: It, it wasn't saining. I mean, the, the the local guys bought into the saners, and the saners is where you would go out find a school of fish and then drop a net circle the school tighten mm-hmm. up the net at the bottom like a big purse you know tighten yeah. the bottom of the net and then haul the whole thing aboard and mm-hmm. uh, and and dump it onto your deck undo the bottom of that dump it out and 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 then process the fish that that was a little more sustainable cuz you could be you could be selective but what these big factory trawlers were doing is tr- is they were trawlers so they would drag these nets and quite often dragged them along the, uh, the, uh, the ocean bottom. And then they would have ticklers, which were wheels with chains that would roll along the bottom and slap the with the chain, slap the bottom. So any fish that was lying on the bottom trying to duck would be, would mm-hmm. be spooked up, jump up, and, and go up into the net. But it would destroy the uh, bottom of the, uh, the ocean floor. It would tear everything to shreds. All the sea life down there was just absolutely destroyed and mangled. And it, it, it scooped everything up. It just scooped everything up into these nets, brought the nets to the surface. Everything was packed in the back of the nets, compressed, nothing survived. It was, you know, bare trauma. There was all, all thing of hyperbuoyancy. All the swim bladders were extended. And, and just the fact that it was all compacted. So they would just pick out the fish they wanted to keep and throw everything else overboard. Oh. And it was just dead. It was just dead. You know, yeah. 50, 60% bycatch of just dead stuff going over the side. Yeah, no wonder that that,
2: Really took a toll on that fishery so quickly, because i mean now you're you're getting fish of all sizes you're getting all the bait fish you're getting everything you're, you're just killing everything that's every yeah it's so so often what what we've seen you know and it's an unfortunate situation when it happens is the gear changes, and what has been a sustainable fishery for a long time all of a sudden is not when the gear changes and this is something that's very difficult to to get a non-fishing person to understand it's like look you go out there and you handline cod for 10 hours and tell me how you feel and tell me if you think you can catch everyone in the ocean because your hands are going to be beat up you're going to be sore you're going to be tired and guess what you got to get up and do it again the next day and you got to get up and do it again the next day and so at some point you are complete, no matter how, how, how great the fish are biting or, or how great the fishing is, a human body just can't do anymore. Like you just can't, and it goes the same for, for our commercial yellowtail fishing, for you know, when, they're, when they're catching tuna on the, on the cane poles and stuff like that, where it's a human body pulling these fish in one by one on a hook well, I don't think you're going to take them all. I really don't. And you compare that to that operation that you just talked about, these giant boats coming with these things that are hitting the bottom and huge nets and all of that. And so to a non-fishing person, a lot of times they're like, well, fishing's fishing. And look, this is what happened here. And they fished it out. It's like, yeah, but that's a lot different than hand lining. A and lot I, different.
1: It's a lot different, but I think we were all painted with the same brush. Like in the 80s and the 90s when we wiped out so many fisheries around North America and and, and around the world, right? And we're still doing it. I think all anglers got tainted with that brush and still are. Like I, I read reports from the World Wildlife Federation and they just say fishing is destroying the environment. And I said, well, hang on, hang on. You can't just say fishing because you're really just lumping us all together and that's not fair. And you can't say what's happening in in the United States and Canada is the same as what's happening off the coast of Africa. It's totally different. So let's be accurate here and let's not be scaremongering and let's not be, you know, painting everyone with with the same brush. So I think anglers need to understand how, you know, the difference and they need to be able to step up and say, you know what? what we're doing around stocking, around catch and release, around limiting harvests, around not fishing during spawns, about having some marine protection areas where, you know, where it's needed, you know, we're actually growing our resource. And if you look yeah, at North America... How, how,
2: about, how about license fees and actual money returning to to fund these type of projects and to fund the law enforcement necessary to make sure that, that people are about, you know, abiding the laws that are that are there for a reason, and you know everybody's safe and happy. And I, I often bring it back to a financial thing because that's what people tend to understand. And it's like, you know, if if hunters and fishermen weren't weren't putting this money into it, if Ducks Unlimited, what didn't do their big push a, a long time ago about preserving wetlands? Then there'd be a strip mall everywhere. Like we would have just drained every swamp and built a mall.
1: You know, that's all hunting and fishing. Yep, yep. And, and you know, it's, it's cheap land, right? Wetland is cheap land. You can buy it for next to nothing. And what developer mm-hmm. doesn't want to take something that's almost worthless to them and, and make a lot of money out of it? But, and, and not to mention also, the amount of hours that anglers put into uh, wetland restoration and shoreline restoration and spawning habitat restoration, we put in more volunteer hours as anglers in those types of activities than all other groups combined. All other groups, we're out there. It's not surprising. Yeah, we're out there doing it. We're out there actually doing it. And you have a you do a call for action in any community. Say, hey, we, we want to plant uh, new trees and brush along the shoreline. Can we get some volunteers? You'll have all the angler groups showing up and, and coming to volunteer. You have to turn them away almost. It's, and you'll uh, have zero antis. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, you won't see many of them. You won't see many of them.
2: You know, well, I mean, that's been my experience so far is that, you know, there's a lot of people that w- want to just complain and, and, um, and, and, and be anti-something. And they're not the ones that are helping the cause at all. That I, that to me doesn't do anything. What does something is is moving forward, like what you're being able to do with with your with your organization, and and that kind of makes me want to ask you because I know your time is valuable. I don't want to take up too much of it, but um, kind of makes me want to ask you a couple other questions, kind of tangential to what we've been talking about. But you tend to have like a really positive outlook on everything. Like, I mean, you are consistent with the last podcast I heard you, the, all the different um, articles that I'm reading. You're, you're doing this going up against a lot of these groups that you're talking about and encountering resistance there. And then not to mention, you know, the, the hand that you've been dealt.
1: How are you, how do you remain so optimistic? I, I like to surround myself with positive people and and i like to be a positive person it, it i think negative energy makes more negative energy uh, it just there's something you know fish like sharks they have those sensors in their heads where they can feel electric electricity the electric pulses of the muscles of the animals they're chasing through the ocean you know i think we can feel energy too and i don't know i don't have little pods of nerve endings under my skin like a shark <laughs> does Not that I know of, but I think somewhere, somehow, you know, like the hair stands up on the back of your neck, somehow Mm -hmm. we we feel negative energy and it it impacts us. I I like to be around people that are positive. I also think, you know, like you said, these anti-groups that are always screaming that the the sky is falling, that the world is coming to the end, that the uh, doomsday clock is about to tick down to one minute, you know, and trying to scare the crap out of everybody. Unfortunately, there's a few very rich people that have been scared badly and have donated huge checks to these groups. And it's 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 fueled all the rest of them to bang the pots even harder with the hope that they'll get one of those big checks too. But I think what the public wants is the public wants to be inspired and they want to know there's an, a possibility of doing something. It's like recycling, right? Instead of dropping the can into the garbage pail, you drop it in the recycling bin what else can I do? Hey, that wasn't so hard. What else can I do? (laughs) And if we can give people those options and say, look, you could do this and you could do this and you could do this. It's not a big deal, but every little bit helps. People want to do that. They don't want to be scared to the death anymore. You know, we all understand the climate is changing and in not great ways, but what are we going to do about it? How can we roll up our sleeves and do something about it? And people are looking for those types of solutions that they can get on board with. And, and by offering that, and by featuring people, uh, and I try to do that by podcast, Bluefish Radio, just featuring champions who are who are out there doing stuff, doing cool stuff, doing cool research, being cool citizen scientists, you know, supporting various activities and, and involvements, and and uh, that are that are building. The resource that are building the the sense of responsibility, they're building that sense of uh, respect and, and 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 encouraging young people to to get involved. Those are great stories, and, and especially now, uh, I think there's a lot of people around climate change, uh, you know, in the public that have uh, what I call pre-traumatic stress syndrome. They they hear <laughs> a, a climate news and they just shut off. They just shut the news off. They don't want to hear more of that. Because it mm-hmm. just it's, it scares them. It's, it scares me, it makes me unhappy, makes me depressed. You know, uh, I don't want to hear all the time the world's coming to an end. I want to hear what, what can I do about it? What can we do about what's being done about it? I want to have some optimism, some positive ideas. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man
2: And you know, so often I tend to turn that news off myself, not because I don't want to hear what's going on or try to figure out a way that I could do something myself, but it's just the one side's using that argument for their own agenda, and then so is the other side is using that argument for their own agenda, and it just turns into something that it was never meant to to be. It was supposed to be a news story about, you know, some some icebergs melting or something, and now now it's something far different. And, uh, and it's just a bunch of people yelling and screaming at one another pointing fingers. I don't, I don't see that that does any, anything for me personally. So I tend to turn it off as well. I'm not signing up for that. Just like you, I don't want any more negativity in my life. I want, I want positive. So with your, with your, um, positivity and your optimism and surrounding yourself with these, with these, um, positive people, and you you seem to have a lot of, of, directions that you would like to go in in your life what kind of goals are you setting for yourself and and how are you planning on
1: achieving them i think tournament fishing is like crack cocaine you know it's it's <laughs> always there you always want to do it but you have to say no to yourself or right? you have to say no i'm not gonna do that you know so i think you know if there's a the story i like to tell a bag of money busts open in the parking lot it's a windy day it all starts blowing along You know, people are out scrambling, picking it up, just grab money. You could, if you just grab for anything, you'll end up with a fistful of fives. But if you're careful and you're selective, you can just take a couple hundred dollar bills out of that windstorm of money and do much Mm -hmm. better. So Mm -hmm. it's not about taking all your opportunities, it's about picking an opportunity and doing it well. And I I think that's the most important thing is is to focus your energy, focus your, um, your, your, your time. We only end up with so many minutes in a day. You know, we have to spend time sleeping every day. We have to spend time feeding and exercising and staying fit every day. And uh, and then we have to find a way to make money every day. And then if we have a little bit of time left, what do we want to fill that time with? So we have to be very um, uh, careful how we allocate that time and and make sure it's, it's being allocated in a way that where we can develop An expertise, a specialization, uh, something we're good at. I I go back to uh, the time I spent a lot of time in the Arctic uh, doing research and living in northern Sweden and northern Canada amongst First Nations and Inuit people. And I, I asked the question, what did you do with your people with disabilities I said, before, uh, you know, before white people came along and Europeans came along, and they, I always thought they just put them on icebergs and shoved them out into the ocean, right? <laughs> Got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and, and, and you hear stories like that, and they're not necessarily untrue. But my first reaction always, and I, it took me a long time to figure this out, is they always told me they never had people with disabilities because they never had guns, they never had axes, they never had alcohol, they never had snowmobiles. They never had all the tools that we use to disable ourselves. So they, they had very low impact ways of living. So, but then I, I, I kept probing and probing. And then I, I realized that to them, a disability meant you, were, you couldn't uh, be a productive member of society anymore. You were a taker. And what they found is when I talked to them, they said, well, I had an uncle who was blind. and An old Indian told me this. He said, but he wasn't disabled. He was the storyteller. Like, he, he mm. had the most important role in the community. No TVs, no internet, no magazines, no radio. Who did you turn to for entertainment on those cold, stormy nights, right? You turned to the storyteller. <laughs> and the storyteller would tell these amazing stories and pass on the wisdom and the values of society. And they were the, one of the most important people in their community. And if that was the blind uncle, you know, they provided him with all the food he needed to feed him and his family. Or the uh, the blind auntie, the blind grandmother who could chew hides and look after the little ones. And she was totally not handicapped. You know, she was deaf. She couldn't hear anything, but she could sure look after kids and make clothing. I think we all need to say to ourselves again, and I think a lot of us have lost this, is how am um, I a net giver? Because it, it's so easy in today's world to become a, a net taker, someone who takes mm-hmm. more than they give. And and if we all take more than we give from society, we're, we're bankrupting society, and you can see that happening. But if we all say, you know, I want to be known as a giver, I want to be um, a giver somehow. I want to be really good and and recognized as a giver in my specialization, and you become a net giver. You you give back more than you take. You're rewarded in so many other ways. You know that. And and, and and that gets back to this whole thing about being a sponsored angler, right? You know, if you want to be sponsored, you have to be seen as someone who gives more than they take, and it's it's totally the case. You you have to be a net giver. If you're just got out there looking for free baubles, you know, uh, you're going to be viewed as someone who's just out for themselves. You're not going to get anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that's awesome. A net a net giver, and you know what, a net giver. Really is, is somebody that gives 51%. Yeah. You don't even have to, you don't even, I mean, like somebody that's thinking about that and thinking, well, maybe I am a taker. I don't know. I mean, you only have to turn it around 1%. Of course, yep. the exceptional givers are given 90% or, or, or way more. But, but really to, to be on a positive track in your life, you really need to be giving 51%. That's a little bit more than you take. And that's awesome. I mean, yeah. And, I mean that and really if you're what you're talking about, if you had a whole community and everybody's given fifty one percent there's there's abundance everywhere if
1: where, there is i mean if if there is. is
2: of course you're going to have you're going to have the people that are that are exceptional givers, just like you're exceptional people they're exceptional whatever exceptional anglers, exceptional whatever they are, and they're going to choose to give way more and dedicate their life to giving but but really, it only takes that that one percent that little bit more than you take and uh and that's that results in a very positive track in your life
1: it, it, it absolutely right I mean some people say well I give I give my taxes that's enough and and we all pay our taxes I hope and you know and we all uh and and those tax monies go to a lot of good uses there's no doubt about that schools and health care and everything but at the personal level, I really think we can do more as individuals if we look after our neighbors, our neighborhoods, you know, if we all care about the people that live beside us a little bit and say, well, look at that old lady across the road or the, uh, the, the single parent there, you know, how can I help them a little bit, you know, and just give to them a little bit in a way that improves their lot in life a little bit and doesn't take my lot up down a significant amount. You know, we become just looking out, you know, you can't do that with taxes. You can't do that with government. You can't micromanage efficiently at that level with a, with a big government infrastructure. It's just unwieldy. It's it's not doable, right? The cost of the the system it outweighs the benefit. So that's why we have to take it in our own hands to do that. We we can't just pay people to do it for us. We need to do it ourselves and just say, hey, oh, here's here's someone in need. Here's a here's cause that I believe in. And Step up,
2: yeah, man, I love that, I love that. I love that uh that's just such a great attitude and and especially when when you know when we're just sitting here talking, the last thing in the world I'm thinking about is that that you happen to be a blind person and i'm I'm talking to someone that has this remarkably positive attitude, talking about giving and talking about helping other people, and you know there's so many people that have zero physical handicaps whatsoever and they're sitting around asking why why is this all happening to me why can't i have what those people have why you know just this negativity and this negative attitude when in fact they have everything that they possibly need physically to do anything that they would possibly want to do or could possibly do in this lifetime. I have a friend um that I that I had on the show one time his name's Kyle Maynard. You may know of him. He's a congenital he's a congenital quadriplegic amputee. So his his uh arms go just to his elbows, his legs go just past his hips. And Kyle is a he's a remarkable person. And I took him fishing. We were out there talking and I I, I said something about disabilities and he said Oh, I don't have a disability. (laughs) And and I'm I'm just looking at him and I'm like, Oh yeah? And he goes, No, I don't have a disability. People lots of people have way worse disabilities than me. I mean, negative self talk, poor confidence. I don't have any of that. I can do anything I want to do. And I was just like, Wow, that is so awesome. That is like the most Incredible thing I've ever heard in my life, but he was—I mean, he was totally serious—and we continued to talk about it. He's like, "Look, man, people have these voices in their head that are just telling them all the time that they can't do this and they can't do that." He's like, "Not me, man. It might take me forty-five minutes to put on a pair of socks, but <laughs> I can—I can do it, and I
1: know I can do it." You know, <laughs> and you create, it just such a—yeah, you create these worlds, you create these worlds, you create and shape your world, your environment where you can be successful. And that's the first step, right? Is how to create yourself an environment where you can be empowered and where you can be successful. I tell you, you know, you talk about sitting down. I If I walk into a room full of strangers, it, right away, people say, oh, come sit down, blind man. And I uh, mm. say, you know, no, I'm okay. And they said, no, no, please sit down. Please sit down. And I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and, and <laughs> they'll, they'll start pushing me towards the chair, right? And I'm six foot, Three and a half, 210 pounds. I'm not easily pushed, and and then and then their next reaction is that blind asshole. He doesn't even <laughs> listen. <laughs> He's a stubborn <laughs> blind idiot. And then you should look and, at him
2: right then and say, "Well, I'm deaf too."
1: <laughs> they, I know they're not they're not saying it, but they're thinking it. And then and then the third thing, you know, once I get the past that I'm not helpless, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not obtuse. Then the third thing is they think, they, 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 Lord, how, what can I do for you? I said, well, now, now we're talking. And, and then I get to take over, right? And then I, mm-hmm. my leadership skills rise to the surface. I take these volunteers, these people around me, and I show them, you know, hey, I am blind, and there's things I can't do. and There's things, a few things you could do for me that would be very much appreciated. And in exchange, I will make sure I do for you in ways that over, more than make up for it. And that gets back to the net giving thing, right? If I turned all my friends into slaves where they were always giving and always doing for me and they got nothing out of it, I'd be a lonely guy. I'd be a lonely hmm. lonely guy. So my friends know though that hey man, yeah, Lawrence is blind, yeah, and he and there's things you need to do for him, but man, you hook your you hook your wagon to his, you know, locomotive and you're going places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: God, I love it. I love it. Hey, uh one more different subject I want to cover before we before we finish up. I want to know what your um what your relationship is with fitness and how that kind of started
1: and what, what place what role it plays in your life. I think it's so easy to say to yourself, I, I can't do that. I, I I'm gonna hurt myself. And as a blind person, it's so easy to live in your head where you're, you know, you're just thinking because you can't see what's going on around, you're not engaged, you can't go out and play frisbee, can't go play catch, can't go kick the ball around, a hundred things you can't do that are normally just sport-type activity. So I have to make an extra effort to find things I can do. And one thing I, I love to do is I love to do triathlons. You know, it's um, it's swimming. I just use a bungee cord to I wrap it around my uh, upper torso and tie it around the waist of my swimming buddy. And we just swim sort of side by side, so I don't veer off course too many times. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then for the uh, bicycle part, we do a tandem bike. I don't get the ride on the front; I ride on the back. And then uh, for the <laughs> running, for the running, I just hold their elbow, and it's funny sometimes because, and I do this with some of my volunteers at the end, and they they don't realize it, but I they, I get a kick out of it. So we're coming into the finish line for the third leg, right, the running leg, and they're maybe a little tired. <laughs> And I say, well, you know what? I said, I've been – you've been dragging me around all day. It's my turn to drag you around a little bit. And they said, Lawrence, I'm not dragging you. I said, well, you know what? That little bit of help, it helps. I said, I'm holding on to your elbow. It helps. So you hold on to my elbow. So then for the last, you know, couple miles, they'll be holding my elbow and I'll be out in front of them. <laughs> and then we, we come to the finish line and everyone's cheering my sighted friend thinking they're the blind one. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, i love it and i'm waving to everybody <laughs> uh, <that's, laughs> that is awesome <laughs> oh god it's gotta have some fun right <laughs> yeah.
2: that's awesome um but you have to you have to have some sort of a of a, an appreciation for fitness what is like in order to be able to do the triathlons, there's there's obviously training that goes into it. Yep. And I saw where you're walking. Um, it says you walk 10K on your, on your uh, bio with your dog every day. Yeah. And fitness is something that's very important to me and has had a big, big impact on my life and helps me to basically stay sane, I think, more so than <laughs> I, I can't imagine a life without it. I, I think love it's your podcast for my brain. I love your <laughs> podcast you.
1: for for, for your promoting that. You know, it's the one health thing, right? You got to keep your nature, your environment healthy, and you got to be healthy too. Like you can't go fishing. Uh, you can't just be a, a slob that's you know half alive and going out in the pristine wilderness and going, oh, this is a you know beautiful. you can't appreciate it unless you feel fully alive. How can you feel mm-hmm. nature, the full life of nature's force, if you're only barely living? So, I mean, I agree. You got to get up every morning. You got to start your day with some fitness. You got to, I have a little gym, you know, and my rowing machine is my swimming exercise, my treadmill is my running, and I have a bicycle, and then I have some dumbbells. And I have a a big open area where I can do all my stretches and my crunches and all the other, you know, manual exercises that I want to do every day. And I feel so much better doing that every day you know because otherwise I could be sitting in front of a computer for 10 12 hours a day sometimes doing stuff and that's just like cancer right that's computers is like smoking it's it'll kill you <laughs> just just kill you of all that sitting around
2: oh. <laughs> well. yeah there's no question about it now now uh, I know that when people hear that they're like well sitting in front of a computer and wh- so how does that work with you? you? Right when we first got on the phone, I heard your computer talking to you.
1: You got a talking computer. Yep, I use a keyboard. I use a keyboard, and uh, I use a software device that that articulates uh, everything on my screen. So I know how to touch type just by feel. I know my keyboard. You know, I, actually, the typewriter was originally invented for blind people so they could write. <laughs> so they could. Print. Yeah, I can believe that. And then, and then it became mainstream technology for everybody. The tape recorder, you know, that was invented for blind people and it became mainstream technology for everybody. So there's a lot of technology that was invented for people with disabilities that became mainstream. And yeah, the uh, audio book. The audio book, I mean, yeah. man. Yeah. God. <laughs> what would I do without audio books? <laughs> I'll agree uh, like- anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I think the, I thought the audiobook was a way of keeping blind people quiet, you know, so they wouldn't rise up and rebel. <laughs> oh man, I had to turn them off sometimes. I think there must be more to life than these audiobooks. <laughs> but you know, for a long time there there wasn't a lot of people didn't have a lot of expectations of blind people, right? There wasn't a a very high expectation. I'm hoping that's changing. I, I don't want to be a, a, you know, I don't want to be directly the guy who uh, goes out there and motivates other blind people to do stuff. But I, I do recognize that I do play a role as a bit of a, a bit of a role model, and I think the role, the image I want to portray is that you can do stuff and you can be really good at it, and it doesn't always have to be about accommodation and and affirmative action and all that employment equity stuff. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to get your foot in the door. But in the end, you really have to step up and be good at something. And you really, it's like a lot of blind people approach me and say, hey, I want to go fishing. Uh, How do I get someone to take me fishing? I said, well, do you know how to cast? Do you know how to tie a knot? Do you know how to do the basic things? And no. Well I said you can't just be a charity case and go expect someone to because I people want to go fishing with someone they don't want to kick their ass they most people don't want to get their ass kicked so you go fishing with people that can keep up to you maybe you can beat them a little bit maybe they beat you once in a while, but you gotta have some skills so so step up, learn some of the skills, learn some of the skills, and then and then you can hold your own a little bit. And you're not going to be just a drain on someone else's resources, right? Where they're going to have to unhook the fish for you and tie on your lures and do everything for you. That's just, that's no one wants to do that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a hard ass, eh? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, but you're, but you're, you're speaking from, from experience and you're speaking from, from a place that very few other people can. So, with the advice that you're giving might be, you know, might sound harsh and it might be a hard-ass advice. But to the person that you're giving to the blind person, that you're
1: giving that advice to, it's the best advice they're probably going to hear if that's really what they want to do. Well, someone has to speak the truth sometimes, right? And, and and it's not always easy to speak the truth to someone who looks so obviously maybe you know un who's not capable. And you know, you this we all have sympathy and empathy and. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's, it's, it makes us human, you know, when we care, it just, just don't crush people with your care. That's all, you know? Yeah. Wow. So if I, I guess I would just be curious just of the last thing,
2: like if that blind person comes up to you and, and ask you that and you say, well, do you know how to cast and do you know how to tie knots? And they say, no, but I'd like to, how would they,
1: what, what would the next step be? I think if someone's think? Com- if someone's committed to learning, then you could say, look, I'm going to, I want to teach you how to tie a knot. It's like every kid, right? You, you You learn, you start somewhere, but they have to be committed to learn. And it can't just be a free ride. Unfortunately, it's called secondary gains where people with disabilities maybe have learned how to manipulate the situation where they get Free rides and 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 take advantage of situations because they use their disability card, right? And they say, mm-hmm. "Hey, I, I'm disabled. You got to do this for me. You got to do that for me." You know, and, and maybe some of that's legit, but you, like I said, you have to give back somehow. And uh, and you have to. There's no reason why people can't get good at things and 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 become good at things. So you have to show some uh, some willingness. And if people aren't willing to learn, and try harder then you have to say look man i i'll I show you this a couple more times but you know you really got to figure this out for yourself because i want to fish too and just yeah. be just be honest right just be honest and and, and 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 how can i help you to help yourself and that's the third piece how can i help you to help yourself
2: right wow that's just the same as parenting and the same as as dealing with with uh with people that have all kinds of other other things, just like just like the negative self talk and everything like that. I mean, disability doesn't just come in the form of physical dis- disability, and that's that's some really good advice for people that are that are dealing with with friends that that are dealing with those other type of disabilities. Like, look, man, sooner or later, you gotta you gotta step up and do this for yourself. Yeah, you know? you've yeah. gotta you gotta learn how to deal with those own your own voices in your head. You gotta learn how to how to achieve confidence somehow.
1: Trying yeah. to help, but there's only so much anybody's going to do. When you go blind, uh, slowly or quickly, it's like you're a brand new baby. It's like only the other thing is, though, is, is you got a fully formed conscious. So you, you understand everything around you, but your whole way of living, you have to learn it all over again. Like you have to learn how to dress yourself, how to feed yourself, how to walk without falling down. You know, so it's all the things a baby has to learn to do, right? And mm. it, it can take a year or or a year and a half to become a fully functioning blind person where you can get around actively with your white cane or your guide dog, where you can you know, learn to use a computer again, where you can learn to write and read, where you can learn to do all those things, cook in the kitchen, do your laundry, brush your hair, or shave yourself, all those things. It, it can take a year and a half. So you got to, there has to be some patience, but, but if it's going on for year after year, you know, that's, that's, that's where someone needs maybe a bit of a push for sure. But it's, uh, it's, 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 it, it's a challenge. But you know what? Who hasn't, who hasn't undergone a challenge in their life? And we all will. We all will have our setbacks. We all will have our challenges. We'll all have our valleys where we need to push through and overcome. It's life. It, was, it makes life interesting.
2: Boy, you're right about that. You're right about that. And just about the time you think that aren't there aren't any more valleys, here comes a big one. And uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh yeah. It's, like, oh, it's yeah. like it just it just always happens. But it always it always boils down for the most part to to the to the mindset, to the attitude that you go into the challenge with to are you gonna lose, or are you gonna learn? I mean, there's a big difference. Like you can encounter a challenge or an obstacle and and you can let that thing beat you or you can you can choose to learn from it and move on and be better because of it man i'll tell you what this has been a really amazing conversation i really enjoyed talking with you for so many reasons i think what you're doing in the fishing world is really cool and the conservation world and and getting children involved in the sport and in just being outside you're really taking it to a different level. And then, and then to take the conversation to another level is just, you you just have a remarkable attitude, man. It's a pleasure to talk to somebody like you. You just, you just have a really remarkably positive attitude. And that has nothing to do with the fact that you're blind. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're a fisherman. It's just, man, I like talking to people that have such an, such a positive attitude. It's awesome.
1: Tom, that's uh, means a lot to me. Coming from someone like you, you know, I've I, I listened to your podcast and witnessed everything, you know, indirectly all the things you've been able to accomplish in your own life. And you know, it's no wonder people tune into you, sir. You're 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 living, you're living, you know, the truth and you're, you're walk and the talk. Right? It's uh, I think I think examples of people who can stay fit mentally, physically, you know. And overcome challenges, and and focus in, and accomplish their goals, and still be able to give back in different ways, you know, and not just become a greedy, you know, uh, annoying person through it all. It's fantastic, and and you represent all that, you know. You're not a well, greedy person. You're you're you know you're giving back with your podcast. You give back I'm with your podcast. Certainly trying, man. You're doing
2: certainly it. Certainly trying. I appreciate that. I really do. I, I appreciate that very much. And. I hope that's the case. I, I am having fun with it. I can tell you that. And I do enjoy learning and I do enjoy talking to people like you. So it's been great. Lawrence, I, I know this will not be the last one. I'd love to do another podcast with you and find out all the stuff that's going on w- within the uh, the Canadian conservation front and and just what you're up to, man. Cool dude. Well, let's keep really in touch, buddy. It. Yeah, me too. Yeah, all right. me too. Thanks. Thank, thank you so much. All right. Oh, wait. Before we go, tell everybody how they get in touch with you, how they f- hear your podcast, how they, uh, how they listen to the Bluefish
1: Radio, how they can help support any of the things that you're doing. Bluefish Radio is on iTunes and a bunch of the podcast providers. You can go to bluefishradio.com and you can see all our past episodes there and links to all the, uh, the shows. Bluefish Canada is our charity where we have a bunch of resources that you can download and tools. We try to keep everything uh, out there as much as possible. And uh, if you want to follow me, I mean, I'm LawrenceGunther.com, dot com, Lawrence uh, like the river, Gunther G U N T H E R. rcom and uh, on on Facebook and Twitter and getting the Instagram going now. I got I look at to learn to take better pictures though. That's the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you know? Yeah, you know. <laughs> how do on. you know? <laughs> My iPhone tells me now. It centers my pictures. It gives me verbal directions on how to center my pictures when I uh, point my iPhone. <laughs> hey, well,
2: I'll tell you what. If you leave it up to Apple, soon you're going to be taking better pictures than all of us <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> that, that company amazing. has a way of that company has a way of, of figuring it all out. And, oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, You just let it let it do its thing. It's probably going to turn out to be better than anything this this podcast is actually the first one that i've done entirely on the iphone so um be interesting yeah i hope it turns out great if so we'll do a lot more uh a lot more telephone ones but lawrence thank you so much for your time and thanks for being so open with us on the podcast I really appreciate it and all the best to you sir same to you tom appreciate it all right see ya